Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. My name is Juliette Fisher, and I am honored to have the privilege of interviewing Brad Bradley himself for the final episode of Brad's groundbreaking podcast, Broadway's Backbone. So um, I feel like this is like, remember back in the 80s when we would watch like One Life to Live and they would be like, today on One Life to Live, a very special episode. Yes. You know, and it would be like somebody had an eating disorder or something. Oh, absolutely. I totally forgot about those episodes. So that's why I feel like today this is a very special Broadway's Backbone with Broadway's Backbone's very own Brad Bradley. <laughs> so I am... Juliette Fisher, interviewing my bestie, my brother from another mother. And we were saying earlier that we met on the school bus when we were 13. We did. My very first memory of you was on the bus, the cute popular boy. And I just remember seeing you with your cute haircut, assuming that you were going to be kind of an a-hole because that's what cute boys were back then. And you were so nice. I remember you, you said, I like your dress. I had on a very 80s sweater dress and you said, I like your dress. And I thought, oh, he's so nice. Aw, well, I'm, I'm happy that you thought I was cute and nice and popular. Well, you were. All of those things. <laughs> I didn't think it. It was true. Well. Okay, so I'm starting with the big fat question. Why did you start this podcast? Oh, wow. That's a completely different question. I love it. Well, um, I think back when you knew me, at the very beginning of our careers, we wanted to be stars. And that's all you want to be is when you're younger. Now I'm going to cry. <laughs> wow, we didn't even make it one question in, Brad. Jeez. <laughs> oh, because this, well, yeah. threw me in a different loop. Oh. Uh, we can start a different way. No, 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 no. <laughs> I guess because I've been crying about so many other things in my life. Yeah. That this is something that's really cool and passionate. I love that you started this way. So, um... When it comes down to it, just one piece of glitter of all the people who want to be a star, become a star. You get a handful of glitter, and that makes up an ensemble. And it's, it's nothing I really even thought about because I was too busy being in the ensemble, thriving in the ensemble, being part of a, someone else's. You take that handful of glitter, and they throw it up there, and they carefully put it where it's supposed to land. And then while they're, while that's all happening, you're looking at the stars, figuring, oh, I want to be that, I want to be that, without realizing that you are part of something beautiful. And I... Right, you might not get the glory. You're not getting that that kind of glory. Yes. But, but you are just as important, if not more. Exactly. Yeah. And I was given the opportunity to be on Broadway seven times, five of them original company members, got to do the cast albums and got to do the commercials and it's been wonderful but it took me a little bit to actually one grow up and really appreciate the magnitude of being in the Broadway ensemble that that is incredible and also realize how much I am giving to a show how much I'm participating in the show and how much I have to offer being in an ensemble of a show and also g getting to understudy oh yeah I, mean, I always understudy and something switched in me where I started to value myself a little bit more. I started to value 
the people in the ensemble anymore, what their job is. Also, I started understanding that not everyone's meant for it and that they're very, a lot of them are, you're bitter, you're resentful because you didn't get something or your path is meant to go somewhere else because I wanted quote unquote star part or other people wanted you know, the director or the choreographer. And at that time, I was still not sure of my place. I was content being in the ensemble, being an understudy. And that's the time that I was able to have an emotional transition like this. I was also growing up and maturing, mm -hmm. but realizing that, wow, this is pretty cool. And that's where the podcast started coming in. And we've talked about it so many times, being ensemble people, that we are the hardest working people on the show. Absolutely. We always laugh that we would be dancing, especially like, remember, um, we didn't do it together, but Christmas Carol. It's like you're dancing in a, a smoke haze with divots in the floor that you can't see where you're stepping while hitting a high C and doing a turn with somebody on your shoulder. You know what I mean? It was just like incredible what incredible. we're doing yeah. in the back, you know? Yeah, in the back with like three pairs of tights. <laughs> Yeah, underdressed. Yeah. Changing wigs in the corner or whatever. Yeah, so, well, I, for one, think it was a brilliant idea to spotlight these people. But, okay, so now we're going to step back now that we hit that big one. So, yes, he was, as he said, in seven Broadway shows, which were Steel Pier, Andy Get Your Gun, People in the Picture, Thou Shalt Not, Billy Elliot, Spamalot, and Christmas Carol. So that's quite a list. And like you said, first cast for five of those. How many of those did you do? Did you do the actual workshop? Was there workshops involved in all those? Not in all of them. I did the workshops of Thou Shall Not and Still Pier. And I believe that's the only two, only two that, that actually had workshops. Now, do you prefer to be in an original production, or does that matter to you? Because I know you weren't an original for Billy Elliot, but you still very much loved it. So well, I think Billy was uh, Billy was was a different experience because I think in overall I like to be. <laughs> I would like to be in the original production and be in the original workshop. So I would say that. And, you know, now it probably isn't retroactive anymore. But, you know, now if you're in the original production, you get a small percentage. Oh, yeah. Well, but that was, wasn't so when you did it, right? No. But now I think but there are some producers that are cool and they, have, uh, they really look out for their actors. I mean, I know people who did Book of Mormon and certain shows like that, they're, they don't get a big percentage. Right. But, but they're set for life in, in a sense. Of like okay, a little bit every yeah every like you know I mean however much to get right five hundred dollars a week or a month I don't even for know for a performer that's amazing oh yeah so it also d depends I mean I've I've gotten a check once from Steel Pier and that was primarily because I think there was a year that a lot of colleges did it I got like seventeen dollars and, and I was like seventeen dollars <laughs> I was like what is this from and then I was like. Oh, I, I remember people saying, oh, this my college did it, or this company oh, did it. So, so I don't think I'll ever get it again. Yeah. I mean, if, like, if I already got my check for the college residuals, yeah. I think I'm pretty much done. Yeah, because it's just going yeah. to go down from there. <laughs> Tell our listeners where you are from. I'm from San Diego, California, born and raised. The Balboa Naval Hospital, where I was born, which it's peach. But I swore when I was a kid it was pink. Instead of coral. It's very, it's yeah. Pink, yes. It's on the cusp. But I always loved that, like, this big coral church-looking place was also where I was born, and it was right across the street from where I started my career, pretty much. That's so great. So how did you get started? I mean, I think I know, but I actually was like, I don't know if I even know, like, how you got started in the business. I know there was Irish dancing involved. Yes, there was. Was that the beginning? I would say it was the beginning. The beginning started with Irish dancing, 
at St. Columba, which is the church. Oh, gosh, yeah. The church right by you. Yeah, yeah. And I was very hyperactive, and my mom didn't know what to do with me, but she tried me in everything, from, you know, everything from kickball to soccer ball. I mean, I have a, a participation trophy for... Almost everything. A closet full. I always say because I have two boys just like you. I have, uh, I have a closet full of sports paraphernalia or dancing paraphernalia. Like, we tried everything. We, yeah, you have to, and that's good parenting. So bravo to you. <laughs> yeah. I think you were amazing for that. Actually, uh, in hindsight, because I know that we weren't ever diagnosed, but do you think you have ADD? I often think I do. I do. I think I might have ADD, but I was also, is it, does that include hy- being hyperactive? Mm-hmm. ADHD, yes. same thing. Because it wasn't until I found what was... Right, right and then hyper-focus. Yes. Yeah. Mom's well, like, thank God. Right. But I also have a drawer of medals. What's interesting is that I, the, the most important thing in my life at one time was wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, which... Um, never heard that before. Never heard this before. No. And then right in downtown, right where there was... I think right now it's probably a shopping mall or something in Mission Valley. Mission Valley, Valley yeah. Or part, probably like... Paid Paradise and put up a parking lot. Right. It's probably a big old parking lot that <laughs> used to be a swim club. Uh-huh. And my mom would drive me early in the morning, and I would do a swim club, and I was a great swimmer. And I thought I was going to be, I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, and then when I was done with that, I was going to be a vet for animals that swim in, swim in the sea. And oh, then like being, right. and then I think, I think I was thinking long term, that then I would just be the vet for SeaWorld. Oh, okay, sure. Because I was going to be there. And then that place went out of business, and eventually my mom put me in Irish step dancing. It all kind of led to around that time, mm-hmm. because all of a sudden I had this built-up energy. Oftentimes the big competitions were in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So my mom was probably pleased she didn't have to drive to L.A. anymore. Ha <laughs> ha! Little did she know Suck what I had around the corner for her. When I closed, she put me in to Irish dancing, and then that that's really where my career of becoming a dancer took off. When did it couple with singing and acting? Someone went in my dance classes, talked to my mom about this small musical theater company that was up in Del Mar. And so I started doing small little musical theater shows. And then eventually I got a tiny little agent. And then... um, Around how old were you at this point? uh, 11. Okay. And then at 12, they were having open audition for a Pepsi commercial that was to be backup dancers for an artist, very little known, but people would call him Michael Jackson. I hear, yeah, he was up and coming. Yeah, he's very up and coming. <laughs> He'll be something someday. Yes. Um, yes, and I mean, it was for the listeners out there. There was, I mean, I heard about the kid who was in the Pepsi commercial, even at my other school. <laughs> it was like legendary. It was like, oh, there's a boy who was in the Pepsi commercial. You know, I mean, because it was that commercial A, that commercial is, I mean, from our generation, we all know what that commercial is. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that you got to be one of the little boy dancers in it was amazing. And I end up seeing it a lot now, because now that more people think it's great now than back then. So people always send it to me every time there's a special. Yeah. Where they're like, top 10 Pepsi commercials or top 10 Super Bowl commercials. It was designed as a Super Bowl commercial, which is the reason that... There are no residuals for that because it was just a... Oh, one-time thing kind of. Yeah, it was yeah. like a, a, right. a big uh, big plop. Damn it, I was going to say, because that would have... I don't know why they don't do more residuals on I that. I know. Did you get to actually speak with Michael, Mr. <laughs> Jackson, if you're well, nasty? I, just a little bit. It ended up we were kind of paired off, and I did most of my interactions with Marlon. And I think Marlon was smart because he saw the trajectory of where 
the camera was going to be and poised himself so that my back, basically, <laughs> is to the camera. So his front was to the camera. And then because behind him, the camera was on Michael and Alfonso. So they were going to be the front soul of yeah. the camera. So he yeah. knew where to be. And he picked a kid to have it be <laughs> back and forth. And it's easy to find me because I'm the only white kid. Yeah. And I'm bopping my head so much that it's going to fall off. You were so cute. And um, You were adorable in that. Yeah, it was, it was just fun. But the thing that we all got to do is that we all got to go into a room with Michael. Not privately. I have zero dish on Michael's action. <laughs> That's the good thing I think about my life and my career is that I have d- zero dish on everybody. Like, I've worked with some amazing talent and just some amazing people that are huge talents behind the pictures. Mm-hmm. And no dish. I mean, a couple of uh, saucy tails. Right. But so when people always come up to me and they get really pensive, they're like, so what are your feelings about Michael and what he did? I was like, I danced in a commercial with him. Right. I don't, I got to ask him, we all got to ask him one question. What was your question? What's your favorite thing to drink? Ah, did he answer uh, appropriately? He said cranberry juice. Okay, so I was going to say, didn't he have to say Pepsi? You know? Oh, oh my God, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's terrible. He did not say Pepsi. And, and it's terrible I didn't ask him that. Did I ask him that? Ah, uh, that's awesome. I've never heard that story that you asked him, what's your favorite drink? What's your favorite drink? Oh. And I remember being at the front of, of the room, because even back then, or the front, we sat in a semicircle at the Debbie Reynolds Studios. Oh, love those. Yes. Depending if you remember <laughs> the Debbie and then we just dated ourselves. Yes, and we recorded it, we taped it actually at the Burbank Studios. Because uh-huh. they had like a back lot. Right. And so that was exciting because there was a back lot, and here I was now 12 years old recording at the back lot at, at, at Burbank, Burbank Studios. Studios. Yeah, so, how awesome is that? You know, so again, according to me, I was like, I'm going to make it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's. that's the story of how I actually got started. Was that your first paid gig? No, I think I'd gotten from doing some of those smaller little shows, like shows like Toby Tyler and a show called like A Yankee Doodle Dandy that I've ended up doing the main version of George M, who's my idol. I love George M. Right. And his tattoo is still in Times Square. Love he it. survived everything. So he's pretty much my idol. I did like small versions of his life that I got money for. Uh-huh. But my first like huge check that I ever gotten was from that. And that was TV stuff? That was TV stuff. As a dancer or actor? Or both? Both. You were a kid dancing and acting? Yeah, I was, I was a kid singing and dancing, doing all that as both. That's amazing. And, and it's interesting, because I believed I was both. And it wasn't until... Right, then, nobody ever told you differently. No. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got older, and my dancing really got good, that yeah, people, people started to tell me, since I was a dancer, my singing was bad. And I was like, oh, okay. Was it bad? I mean, I've always known no. you to be a singer. I was say, I've always known you. I've always known you to be a singer. Yeah, me too. But you know how you, that there's this that all stigma. of a sudden there's this stigma and stereotype that I was dancers can't sing. That dancers can't sing. Yes. Yeah. And I was I, I was allowing myself to fall into that. Mm-hmm. And it was because of other people's talk. I still go through that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Other people would be like, "Oh, why?" They're like, "You're a good singer. I never thought you could sing." I was like, "Why would you say that?" They're like, "Well, because you're such a good dancer." Right. Obviously, you're you're. Yeah. Obviously, you're a bad singer. And I think as a kid, you believe that. So it's... Oh, yeah. um, that stuff gets ingrained in you. Oh, yeah. And there's so much of that type of bullying that you didn't realize you were getting bullied. Because they would always start it off as a compliment. 
from there, you went to O'Farrell School of Creative and Performing Arts in San Diego, which is our high school. Great high school. We've had two Tony Award winners come out of it. I think three. Do we have three? Maybe one was just a nom. So yes, we've had two Tony Award winners and one Golden Globe winner. It was a good school. So from my perspective, I always knew you to be a singer. Oh, okay. That's until you had to partner me in ballet. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Then I was you're like, like, oh yeah, you are definitely <laughs> a singer. Exactly. I'm like, really, guys? No, he's definitely a singer. No, I'm kidding. You were a beautiful dancer. Ballet, you weren't a ballerina, but right. you were a beautiful dancer. Because at school, you were the shit. You know, you were triple threat man. But I always called it Brad Bradley and the School of Performing Arts. Um, how was your takeaway from our, our school, our high school? Did, did you think it prepared you for our business? Yes and no. I do think it prepared me for this business musical theater-wise, maybe not TV and film-wise, mm -hmm. but that really wasn't the focus of it. Right. Um, we didn't have a TV film department. That was what no, we didn't and have. So I, I really do feel like it prepared me for it, like in almost every way it could. I felt more prepared for going into what I wanted to prepare in show business, graduating from my high school, than I did for my college. Really? Yes, and even though... But I think my college wanted to probably prepare you to be an all-around actor, performer, for whatever you chose, it still had that attitude. And I liked, I liked my college education. No more say, oh, I should say. Oh, I should say. Oh, I should what, what say. What was that ugly accent? It's, uh, <laughs> it's Mary Poppins coming out. And that's so funny, because that was, we had a conversation 10 to 15 minutes ago that we weren't recording about Mary Poppins. Yeah. And now that just comes out? Yeah, it comes out. Um, it still felt like you could do anything. You could be King Lear. So today, you're going to learn from King Lear when I'd be like, no. Probably not going to do that. Yeah, I don't need to learn. They're like, no, but that's what this college experience is for. So that you learn how to... What I do feel like, even if you're not going to use it, those little tidbits, you can learn something from it that maybe you'll apply to some part. You know yes. what I mean? But yeah, it certainly wasn't your focus. You were never planning on going to Oregon Shake and doing Shakespeare. No. So. And I think other people were, but they felt like they wanted to prepare you for the thought that you could play anything. Yeah. And well, think, that's such an actor's notion, right? I can, what do you want? I can do anything. You want that Shakespeare? Sure. You know, I mean, yes. it's such like an actor thing to be like, I can do everything. Yes. When you learn growing up, it's probably better to, you know, hone in on. Learn on what you're going to get cast in. Yeah. And I felt like our high school SCPA cast people, we, we, first of all, we cast people regardless of their ethnicity way before you were supposed to. Way before it was cool. Yeah, we actually did. Well, we, 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 we cast people solely based on talent. Yes. No matter what. Whatever your color, race, gender, whatever, it didn't matter. Yeah, you I was cast. just looking at pictures, yeah. especially of our seven brides for seven brothers. Oh, yeah. It was so diverse. But Gypsy, too, and we cast based on talent. Yes. Which I love. Yeah, and so now that it's such a big deal, I was like, okay, I did that in high school. But I think we were the exception, not the rule. Right. You know? I thought our school was a good stepping stone because we did the school, and we, then we did Starlight, the, the local Civic Light Opera. Yes. And I thought between those two things, it was a great catalyst into what we do. I agree. But on that note, you chose to go to USC. Yes. When in our business, you don't necessarily have to go to college. So why did you choose USC? Why did you choose to go to college? And are you happy you did? Do you think you would have preferred to take those years and already apply it to going to New York? I'm really happy that I did. I mean, I'm actually thrilled that I did because it actually saved my career and my life later on. Ooh, do tell. Well, I think it made me a better actor. Mm-hmm. And... I think in all the talking that we did about, can you sing, can you dance, can you act? I ended up focusing on my singing and my, and my dancing. 
and was ready to have a great career, but I was probably sucky at acting. All of a sudden, I was like, I wanted to do be a good musical theater actor, yeah. and I hadn't, I hadn't even worked on being an actor at all. Right. So overall, it made me a better actor. It made me a better researcher, because I'm realizing how many projects I do, where I've done, we did a full week of research for Thou Shall Not, that was combined with rehearsals. Where with Steel Pier, we did a full week of research that was not combined with rehearsals. It was research. Right. Yes, and, that, and it was hard. And we were learning dances. We were learning food. Or other shows you get, you're like, oh, I have to figure out what time period this is from. What is the actual accent that they want? And so... A backstory, yes. all that kind of stuff. Like, it, how to deepen your character, not just be so shallow. Yes. Right? Yeah. So those type of things. Yeah. But when the pandemic hit, I was in my late 40s, and I didn't have anything going for me. My careers were tanking. The world was suffering and tanking. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And my big change, a big catalyst, was when I started really working on the Mayor Pete for President campaign. Mm. Chastin Buttigieg had a rally, and his rally was about performing arts and drama teachers, and how if that t teacher and that person wasn't there for him, who knows whether it would have been suicide or alcoholism or something, he and other people like him that were scared to be anything else but the geeky kids, they would have had no place to go. Right. So they went to the drama class. Right, the drama class, the Some dance place class, they the fit choral in. class. Yes. Yeah, the safe. It was a safe place. Yes. Yeah. And I, I took for granted the fact that, one, I was white. Totally forgot about, like, all these great things happened to me. A lot of them happened to me because I was <laughs> white and I was male. And I had to reevaluate that. And then just the fact that I had, like, five or six, not only schools that I could have chosen from that had a drama department, but almost every department had a drama department growing up. Right. Now we really don't. Yeah. And so it, I was like, ah, I would never really teach. But if I go back to teaching, I would definitely go back to the public education school because that's where they need me. And by this time in my career, I think a lot of people, they get to a certain age, you're like, well, of course, I'll, if I ever taught, I would want to be a professor. Also because you don't have to go to, to school that much. Right. You could use your BFA and add on to it. Which is crazy to me that it takes less education to teach at university than it does at high school. I yes. That's kind of backwards So, so to me, backwards. But, yeah. And I um, had auditioned for two universities by then, didn't get either of them, and was like fine with that. But then when the pandemic hit and names that I shall not name gave the country extra money, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make people like that pay for my education. And so I paid $3,000 and started into school during the pandemic to become a drama high school teacher. And then when we got the other $3,000, at the end of the pandemic, I paid it off. And I got my degree as a high school drama teacher because that's where I wanted to give back. And that's because you had that bachelor's degree yes. from USC that allowed you to just get the extra year credit or whatever it is, yes. right? So I think having that helped me. If I would have said that at 30 years old, no, I still hadn't grown up enough. I think I kept saying, oh, I'm glad because it made me a better actor. <laughs> That was still my mode of... Your go-to response. Yeah. Yes. But later in life, realizing the truth is, no, I actually needed it. Not everybody does. I mean, I have some of my most successful friends don't even have a high school degree. Mm -hmm. So everyone's path is different. I could just say that that one year of teaching that I had during the pandemic, it was during the pandemic, but it was the second year starting in September. I only know that because they threw me in as a teacher that second year. And I was like, I don't 
know how to teach yet. I'm still, I'm still, still in school. But it was so fulfilling and magical. I'm going to probably say magical like 18 times in this podcast because I'm seeing so much magic in the world. Yes, yeah. I, I am. It's it's great that you can. Very true. Because not everybody does. I, I, truly, not everybody does. I think so many people focus on the negative that they don't. They really can't appreciate the positive. And it's great that through all the negative, you can still see the positive and appreciate life. Yes, thank you. Let's read the name of the song. You got to Accentuate <laughs> the positive. <laughs> oh, we're going to... Okay, so after USC, when you had a really beautiful roommate, it says here. <laughs> I believe her name was Juliet Fisher. Oh, that's so funny. That was... USC, and then we were supposed to move to New York together, but you decided to do the five-year program at school. I did. And I left without you, sorry. But <laughs> you came shortly thereafter. And your first job in New York City was Christmas Carol, right? Yes. Which is stupid. It was my first audition. It was your first audition. That is so funny. And I remember you got it, and I don't even think you kind of knew exactly what it was, because I had already known what it was, because I'd heard about it being there a year before you. And you were like, yeah, I got like this, um, I don't know, Christmas Carol. And I was like, what? You got what? Yeah, because, I mean, it was a production contract. Oh, yeah. Come on, with Susan Stroman and Mike Ockren? Are you kidding me? Yes. That was your first job, your first audition. I love that. The only four people left. So uh, there's only four slots open. Right, So it was a very small audition, and... I'll always remember they made me do turns in second. I am so proud of you. See, I went from being a terrible ballet dancer... To doing turns in second. And on Broadway. Yep. So I went from being an inadequate ballet dancer in eighth grade to being a good-ish ballet dancer doing turns in second alone on a Broadway stage. I know! And that was, I was saying, I I had drinks with Jimmy Newman the other day, and we were talking about you, and he was like, oh yeah, and he would just get out there and do these turns in second for days. You know, it's like one thing he remembered about you. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, and it was was just one of the things that, it showed how Broadway really is. It's funny, too, I'm always scared to call it a Broadway credit. Same. I am, too. But I do. Yeah. You know, it really became a Broadway credit when I got a second one, because then there's always there's always something about getting the second your second big credit mm-hmm. because then you're like oh it kind of I validates you yeah yes I was the same way because I mean I only have the two credits you know but for me that was my second credit I was like okay it validates valid- oh it does the other one so it was exciting because well one they asked me to do something that I was like sure and that when you're cocky like that when I was 22 or 23 and I hadn't officially even moved there Jeff was driving our stuff from Nashville that week so it's funny because whenever someone talks about how nice I am I always remember that oftentimes I had an assistant in my being niceness like Jeff is the one who got us to New York so when I went to New York and auditioned for five shows and then flew back to Nashville to drive the stuff there found out I got like oh random I got like three callbacks out of the five auditions one of them was for Christmas Carol, and flew back there and got the job. And Jeff ended up not getting to drive with help, so drove by himself, like drove all our stuff together. Right. Like, really, was I that nice? Someone drove you all my stuff across the country for me. Well, it's not like and you I, ditched him on purpose. No, you I know. Did, yes, true. Yeah, I didn't ditch him on purpose. You know, I mean, for that wonderful show, they needed someone to do that. And of course, when, I'm, when I saw it years later, they actually wanted Fuerte turns, and I did turns in second, and then did it my way, just because um, I'm a show-off. Then I would turn that into two Fuerte turns, and then finish it. That's what I ended up doing in the show. I was going to say, everybody did it after you. Yeah, so I didn't realize that in the beginning, it just wanted Fuerte turns. It was well, great. I loved it. Yeah, I remember working for Stroh. The joke was, 
don't do it in the background or on the sides unless you want to do it for eight shows a week. Because if she saw you doing something over there, she'd be like, wait, wait, do that again. And, and that was it. It was no, in the show. Yes. You know? So don't play around unless you were willing yes. to do it for eight shows a week. Exactly. When she started my career, like she, at, the, at the callback, she asked, Shred asked me, she's like jokingly, she's like, where have you been all my life? And I was like, San Diego? Did you even know who she was at that point? Really? No. I didn't. I mean, I didn't either when I first came here. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. I did not know. I didn't know um, what a big deal Crazy For You was. It was pretty new. But, yeah, it was huge, right? No, I think it had been open for a while, and it was, it was getting ready to close. Oh, maybe was that it? Okay. There was something going on that was pretty cool about it. So I remember seeing it. And she wasn't yet a director herself, right? No. She was, was still working with Mike? Yes. But still, I remember, I was nervous to audition for her. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't imagine. After I figured out who she was, you know what I mean? Yes. Then I was like, oh. But I think the fact that we didn't really know, and we had some ignorance to it, oh, helped. Ignorance is bliss. Because then, doing that show, which, P.S., by the way, I love that show. Did you love it? I love doing that Christmas show. Christmas Girl? Yeah. Or, oh, I did too. The music was so beautiful, and I always, to have a job at Christmas time was always so nice. Yes. And to know that, as long as they liked you, you could keep doing that gig. Yeah, you know I mean? for 10 years. You did it two years? Four. Oh, you did it for four years. Yes. And we never did it together? That is insane. I know. I did it second, third, and fourth, and then I came back the 10th. And I did it, you did fourth? I think I did fifth, sixth, and seventh, and I was supposed to come back the 10th, and I got pregnant, and I couldn't uh, come Well, that's a little bit more important. Yeah. But then that led to her hiring you for Steel Pier? Yes. Did she just call you in, or did you have to... There was a final call back. It was just an invited call. Right. And it was down at 890, and it was really scary. Was it? Because then yeah. you knew who she was. I knew, she, I knew who she was. <laughs> You'd figured it out. Yeah, and by that point, I'd become savvy enough in the business to know what was actually happening. Right, what was at stake? Yes, that the people in this room were getting the job. And were really good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh my God. And I was the youngest, the shortest, you know, and I just was like, and, and I also, just from talking to people, knew, knew who she was. And rehearsing in 890 for Christmas Carol, knowing that only certain people are allowed to rehearse certain places. Mm -hmm. There was even a hierarchy about that, about like choreographers wanting to to rent out places and they'd be like, "Mm." Oh, I didn't know about that. Yes. So 890, you had to have status to go You had to have status to work. And I found out this from, interestingly enough, people like Casey Nicola, before they had status, asking to rehearse in places like that. And they were like, no, you don't have enough status. Oh, like, oh, like some of Casey Nicola. Don't you want my money? Like, come on. I need to interview him because some of his stories. And now look at him. Ha ha. I know. (laughs) I know. Ha ha. I mean, Still Pier was such... I love that show. I still don't know why it wasn't a bigger hit myself. I had the privilege of seeing it three times. I saw it. <laughs> I saw some special thing that you guys did. We only did the first half, like a press preview or something. Like a te- teaser. Yeah, I, I don't think know. It was, I love that you saw that. Yeah, it was like a, a Broadway teaser. That I'd never heard of before. Yeah, me neither. And I don't know if I've ever seen one since. But and I remember I, I thought it was so good. It was, probably, it was for the producers to just try to get money. Oh, to so, get backing more? Yeah, backing? to get more backing. Oh, okay. So you were understudying Joel Blum, right? Yes. Did you go in right away for opening? Or did he make it to opening and then he went in? Okay. I took over for him way before previews. I started doing his part during the director's run-through in the rehearsal hall while we were getting ready to open. And so all of all of the, the producer's runs, all of the runs where the musical director and the director and all the bigwigs sat around getting ready to move to the theater. That's when I started. Like, we were a week away from moving to the theater to start 
taking the show and they lost one of their leads and so that's when I started and I did it until press night so and I get confused too so because your part your normal part you were the brother sister or was that Joel's part that was Joel's part so the brother sister was Joel's part yes so because you were in all the press release I mean in the videos and stuff it was oh, you yeah. it was not all Joel me. and I remember I saw you do that part and your regular track you were so good in that part because you and Joel were like, he's much older than you right yes but it just worked because all of a sudden I guess he was the older brother and instead you played like a little brother yeah and the, the Valerie Wright she who's a brilliant great. actress yeah. that was never ever stated she did it she created that dynamic because it was all on her and I was very much confused as heck as this little kid not really still in real life knowing what to do right but her dynamic and her grace and beauty as what she developed in that role for being probably the smallest role of the principals mm -hmm. is what made it actually happen. It wouldn't have worked without her because she instinctually was there emotionally to take care of me on and off stage because I was freaked out. You, she really was the big sister. Yes. And for, for me, getting to play opposite her made me a better actor. And then when she had to switch... Sometimes matinee days, sometimes uh, when, after, even though he came back, he started to only come back at the night performances because he was still hurt, poor guy. Right. But it was his role. He wasn't going to give it up. We have, I get that. Who would? <laughs> I get for that. For goodness sake. Yeah. She, she had to, the dynamic yes, had to switch yes. each show. And it was just unbelievable and amazing. So my Broadway debut, which I always consider the gypsy run, because the first time you're in front of an audience. Yeah. A Broadway audience. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, oh, my God, I got to do my Broadway debut. And a fantastic part that you were so good in. You're so sweet. No, but I remember <laughs> watching you. you because that was a part that you totally could have actually done. You know what I mean? Not, yes. you, you weren't just like, oh, the understudy's on. It's like, was he the understudy? Because that was great. You know right. what I mean? Because yeah. it just fit you so well. Yes, because yeah, it, it, it was well. It was your tapping. It was all that great tapping that you do oh. so well. If it was me, it'd been all air taps. You know, <laughs> no sounds would have come out. So it was cool and magical. And I have so many cards that John Kander wrote me, <gasps> like one that says, "I owe you a theater, Brad." That he was going to buy me a theater. Ah! And it, that's just really sweet and wonderful. And it was just a great, great time. That was also when Casey Nicola told me. To start saving my paychecks and i was like why he's like brad we're gonna close we shared a dress room spot when i was in my regular track okay. and i shared it with him in that dress room i was casey nicola there was also andy blank bueller oh gosh you know just two a couple of couple unknowns a couple of no unknowns i think yeah. they'll do well maybe joanne hunter was in the, <laughs> oh my god it was all the choreographers in that yes it was in the dress room downstairs and there was three of us that made our broadway debuts and John. Show. John McGinnis was in it. Yeah, John McGinnis. Uh, as well. But it wasn't his debut. But uh, all those choreographers. Just lined them up. But it was me and Christian Chenoweth. I don't know. Yeah. Have you ever heard of her? Yeah, she's, no, but, she's done all right. But it was me, Christian Chenoweth, and Dana Lynn Morrow, the three of us. It was our Broadway debuts. And it's so interesting how I find that there are certain shows... I mean, good Lord, they knew how to cast, right? Because you get this group of people, even though the show wasn't a huge success, look at that cast. Oh, yeah. They've all gone on Jimmy Newman. I mean, they've all just gone on. To, I mean, even the ensemble members are huge now. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Tony Award winners. Yes. Like, that's crazy. And, and so cool. Stroke and pick them. Oh, she does. Yeah. And I was one of them. Yeah. She picked me again years later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thou shalt not. And, like, that was one, another one where... You do the workshop, and they're like, this is cool. This is really unique. This is going to work. And you never know, because what's something is magical and interesting 
in a workshop in a small space, for some reason when it, you explode it out into the audience, it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, who knows what exactly makes something work and something doesn't? Because again, it was great talent. Yes. I mean, especially still period. You got Keanu Nab. You got Susan Strowman. You got a great cast. So uh, amazing. And yeah. then, like I said, I still love that show. So I, how long did it last? Superior lasted about five months. Yeah, the day after the Tony Awards, we got our notice. But but let it be told that you got to be on national television on the Tony Awards, <laughs> and you got it up close and personal. Yes, I did. Dressed as Mr. Peanut. Yes, you were a full giant peanut. <laughs> me and De- me and Deb Monk, her close up because what they wanted to do is the people who were nominated, but they weren't featured necessarily mm-hmm. in the clip that, that was we were going to be used. Going to yeah. be used. Strowman because she's classy wanted to make sure everyone got something. So there are two days that are very similar. The first day, she I could see her walking from across the rehearsal room and catching my eye and walking straight up to me with Joel Blum had just fallen on the floor and she's just whispered in my ear and she said, are you ready to do this? I was like, absolutely. And then she was like, great. And then she walked to the front and she said, ladies and gentlemen here, Liza Minnelli, all these people were there because it was a Kander and Ebb final run through before they moved into the theater. They're like, if you can give us 15 minutes, Brad Bradley's gonna continue in Joel's role. Oh my God, like literally. What What did Joel actually do? He, like, twisted his meniscus or something. Okay. It was something bad. So the fact that he made it back so well is a wonderful miracle. Wow. Um, and it took a while. But you literally went on mid-run? Mid-run. Wow. In front of Liza Minnelli? Yes. No pressure at all. But we kind of finished it slowly. Then the next day, they wanted me off book. But I digress because this happened the second time, and I could see her walking towards me. And by this point... We were rehearsing the Tony number, mm-hmm. so I inside of me I was like having giggles. Her eye contact wasn't as severe, and her eyes weren't as determined, and there was something a little downtrodden. <laughs> and she was like, "Brad, you're going to be dressed as Mr. Peanut in this section of the Tonys." I was like, "As Mr. Peanut?" She's like, "I know." But it's going to be funny, but you're going to be dressed as Mr. Peanut. I mean, were you in the first half in a regular costume? Yes, but I'm in the first half on the back of the cart where Ron and Carol, myself, and Casey, because I was, I was a budding character man back then already, mm-hmm. just would sit there and be in the back. So that was it. You had that, that was it. and Mr. I, Peanut. I ran off, did a quick change mm-hmm. on the Tony Awards, and walked in, and she says, get out of here, you nut, and then I, and I dance off. And then she, like, does her little bow. Dances off the other way. It's just just ridiculous and fun. But for opening night, I got a, I have a tie covered in Mr. Peanuts that I can say Sean <laughs> gave this to me. Oh, did she? Yes. That's awesome. Well, I think because it wasn't your only Tony Award in the moment, because right. luckily you got to do other ones yes. so that you have proof. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's funny and cute, but thank God you have other ones where you were actually on the stage, right? Absolutely. Given that you were in your youth always the leads, high school, college, you were always the leads. Did it bother you to come here and be ensemble, or were you just freaking happy to be on stage? Uh, I think the transition to just to be happy to be on stage happened pretty fast. I think a lot of that happened to do with with at Starlight, because when I would work at Starlight in San Diego, the Starlight Bowl, they would do five shows a summer. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'd get in five, sometimes I'd get in three, sometimes one. They kind of mixed it up with me, so like a year they do five shows. I would play Tulsa in one of them. Mm-hmm. And then in the other four, I was strictly ensemble. Uh-huh. So in uh, one year, there would be, I'd get cast in three shows. 
So they'd give me Andy Lee for his second streak, but then random patron into something else. Right. Th- that place not only kept me educated and kept me smart, it kept me humble. I mean, my personal feeling is when you come to Broadway, you're surrounded by the most amazing talent. Yes. That it's almost like, okay, cool. If it was somebody who was not talented who was getting a role over you, that's different. But when there's right. people who are amazing, you're like, all right, yeah, he's great. She's great. I mean, do I want it? Sure. But I'm okay that they have it because they're amazing too. Yes. Okay, so you have been in so many great shows, but I personally think the most recognizable one is Spamalot. Tell me about that process. Spamalot is the show that changed my life for many, many reasons. One, it's, it's the biggest hit. I would say I was I was in and how long did it last on Broadway? Do you remember? Uh, about five years. Which is interesting because so did Andy get your gun, but I feel like Spamlot is just like so, was so huge. Well, I think Andy was a bit might have run a little bit shorter, and it was a star vehicle, right, of an old show where I think with the star of Spamlot was Monty Python, and it was really cool to see the original company because. They all had different takes, like David Hyde Pierce, because they all, they had a reverence for it, mm-hmm. especially Tim Curry, and they had a reverence and a respect for what Monty Python was. Yes. And just to see that caliber of performances, Sada Ramirez sing that song. So I think people rushed out to see it, but the thing that kept the show open was not necessarily about the stars anymore. It was about people who could do the material, and the material being Monty Python was the star. And so you didn't really care anymore if it was a David I. Pierce or a Hank Azaria, Right. Because you, you, you got that. Yeah. You know, now you were like, cool, I want to see people that know what they're talking about. And so that's so that's what this show became more about. Because it always becomes about stunt casting. But it is nice when the stunt casting is about people who know the material as opposed to stunt casting of... Some 80s star. Yeah, we need, if we get this yeah. star from this random TV show, it'll... Sell some seats. Yeah, especially they needed seats sold until Reba came. Right. So they were like, can you just keep us show... Open until maybe McIntyre is available. Yeah. Which is so tacky to the actress. It ended up being two actresses that had to do that big track of keeping it open. And both of them were fantastic. But they were... But they didn't put butts in the seats like Rebo could. Yeah. So Spamalot sounded like it was a lot of fun, right? Oh. I mean, and they seemed to me that they let you guys have a lot of fun and come up with a lot of bits on your own. Yes. Like something, you told me something, you guys as knights got to pick your own knight and you were like knight of the rubber ducky or something. What is it? (laughs) What was that? Yeah, that was, the designer came in and I watched the run through. So always make sure you, like you say, doesn't matter about the choreographer. If you're doing something in the back, someone's going to find you. Yeah. Like, I chose to have a fake cigarette in my mouth for all of Annie Get Your Gun. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was the sexy Marlboro man. Well, no, that William Ivy Long saw me somewhat sexy, so I was like, I'll take it, but as a Mexican mariachi. So I was like, what? <laughs> so I had this Mexican mariachi costume where I had a cigarette out of my mouth the entire time. And then it had to become a bit, and I had to have it the entire show, not just the numbers... I wanted it to be in. Right. All of a sudden, Graciela would be like, where is your cigarette? I'd be like, oh, that was a... your prop, sir. Yes, I was like, oh, okay. But the designer of that show picked a yellow tabard for me and picked something about my... The way I looked at my performance, I was the rubber rubber ducky knight. So I had a big rubber ducky on my tabard. What do you mean you were the rubber ducky knight? Uh, Each knight has uh, a tabard with what their symbol is. Right. But why... I don't know the connection to the rubber ducky white. I have no idea. Oh, I thought you picked it. It was no. just like, he picked it for you? He picked it for me. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. And I was like, this is mine? <laughs> 
like, I was like, I thought, like, I mean, we're knights, we're goofy knights. Yeah, but, but you're still, like, knight of the shark I, or something. I was like, I'm so manly. <laughs> He's so manly. Let's give him a rubber ducky. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But somehow it worked perfectly. It did work perfectly. And we got to choose our, for I'm not dead yet, we got to choose our ailments. So I had a stumpy arm. I told them how I was going to do it. And then it, they were like, okay. And they had to figure out a costume for me to do that, to have an arm. And to figure it out. And I was like, why did I choose this? Which, truth be told, I didn't. I'm not going to take credit. That was Christian Borel, the brilliant Christian Borel, came up to me and was like, why don't you do... Stumpy arm. The stumpy arm that's caused off the level. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, like created that. Oh, but yeah. he shared that information with me. Because people think I'm funny and I'm not. I steal very well. I've understudied... Some of the best people on Broadway and some of my closest friends, not even my closest friends. I'm not close friends with Christian Borrell. He gave me a funny idea and I took it, stole it, got the credit for it. But you have to know what's funny. Yes, that's true. That's an art form. I, I'm the same way. Half the stuff I do is from things I've seen that people do in other productions. And yes. I go, that worked great. I'm going to use that. But yes. that's its own brilliance, though. So you have to be able to recognize it. Yes, I do. I have good taste in what I steal. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so Casey Nicola was the choreographer for that, right? Yes. And with that show, again, it was an invited call. So I didn't even have to go through any of the audition process for that, uh, except for the invited call. Invited calls usually, just in case you didn't know, which I didn't, especially because I was fortunate enough to only go to invited calls for a period of my career, which is awesome. It's a smaller stage of an audition. You go to the invited call, you go to the call back. There you have it. So with that show, I went to the invited call. I went to the callback, and then they decided to have a final, final callback, which they don't necessarily do anymore. So I'm glad I got to experience this. They bring you out on stage, and there were seven of us, and they're only looking for six. Oh, God. That we knew of. That's the worst, that one person. They brought us out on stage, and Mike Nichols, he's old school. He's also Mike Nichols. Right. And you, uh, do, and you do what he says. You say, yes, sir. He was in the audience. Doesn't even look like he was paying attention. He was on the phone. Like, oh, great. Just kind of waving. He was doing something. And we all stood in the line. He looked down the line. Then looked over at Casey Nicolau. was like, looked at Tara Rubin. Gave her the thumbs up. Waved at us all. And smiled. And then went back to whatever he was doing. So we assumed right there and then that it was just cast. And for some random reason, I didn't get called right away. And I had an anxiety attack. But we were all cast at that moment because they were looking for seven plus the swing. The swing. Oh, yay. So everybody got a job. Everyone got a job that day. Oh, my gosh. That Thank God. Yes. Your accent. I love it. What did I say? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. See? Because why? You're still a working actress at 49 <laughs> years old. 49. You're so sweet. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. wait 51. <laughs> we're the exact same age? Yeah. For nine months of the year. Old man. I am an old. But that's not what I feel like. So old. You know? <laughs> You know, I've been spending so much time with my younger sister, who's now my, I feel like my older sister, that I feel like I'm an old man, but... It's so funny, because I feel like she's the adult in the room, because she was such a kid when we were in high school. Like, I'll always think of her as a 12-year-old or 14, you know, little girl. And now I defer to her right now, because oh, she's absolutely. so amazing. Nicole, well, also Nicole was, you're amazing. She was also the 12-year-old little girl that you would write fake signatures for to get her out of school, <laughs> because I drove late. Every day people every day every day i would get these beautiful young women who were trying to get their education together and i could not get out of bed in time to drive them to school ever 
So you have worked with some hugely legendary creators. Stroh, Mike Cochran, Mike Nichols, Casey Nicola, Graziella. Graziella Danielle, right. yes. So can you pinpoint any, like, masterful words of wisdom that you've gotten from them? Like, are there things you went, oh, that was so amazing from Mike Nichols, and that was so amazing from Stroh, or from watching them and learning? I think from Mike Nichols, it was kill your babies. That sounds horrible. It does sound horrible, but he would always say kill your babies. And it's true because... Well, what do you mean by it? <laughs> get rid of your favorite things you do in a show because they're getting in your way. Because then it becomes a bit. Mm. And then it becomes reality. Mm. And it, your, your baby becomes something that you coddle because you know it works so well. Well, if, you're, if you know about it and you know its existence and you know it's your baby, it doesn't work anymore. Mm. It means you're using it. So are you constantly doing that? Because if you give that one up, then you'll find another bit. Yes. So is it a constant you're thing? Constant, if you constantly kill your babies, you're more in the moment, you're more present, mm. and you're really engaged in what's going on, and you're engaged in the other actor. Because if you're engaged in your own funny moment and how funny you are, right. even if it's your ensemble moment, then it completely takes everything out of whack that's on stage. Wow, interesting. You know, so, and also just like sometimes your job is just to say the line. Right, not every line has to be Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes. So that was that was a big one. And I just remember one time, the, the use of dead babies, which must be an English thing because they say it often. They kill babies often, I guess. <laughs> um, but I remember we were doing something on the ground and we were all surrounded around Tim Curry kneeling. It had something to do with the grail. Mm-hmm. And Tim Curry just turned and he said, that's about as funny as the grateful of dead babies. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, that's not funny at all. <laughs> and I wanted to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got what it was. Right. I got the joke, but as a little California boy, I would want him to be like, dude, that is so not funny. <laughs> um, but instead, I, was, I just kind of took it in and did the bit make it? No. Well, there you Cause, go. Because these... Was it was as funny as the dead grateful babies. of dead babies. It just you would not catch yeah. an American saying that. No. Ever. The biggest thing that big stars showed to me was how to be a big star. A gracious big star, yes. hopefully. Yeah. Like David Hyde Pierce, one of the most well-known television actors of all time, really. And he was so smart, so gracious, always killed his babies. Wasn't he in your Christmas card one year? Oh, yeah. Right? He was, he was, I think he might have been... Um, it was something... Uh, Silent Night. Silent Night. Was he shushing you or something? He, yeah, he was shushing me That's and put funny. his hand over my mouth. That is so brilliant. And he said, oh, silent night. Oh. And it, it, I loved I loved that he said yes. He was just such a cool guy. They wanted to fix his air conditioner one year. And he was, he was like, what's a good time? And he straight out was like, can you fix the one in the male dressing room ensemble first? They've been complaining longer than me. Aww. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. That's class. Yeah. yeah just so it's, it's moments like that which I didn't get to tell you, but uh, I'm in Cheetah Rivera's book. Stop it. Yes. And she mentions it, a lot of it alphabetically, or maybe it's not, but I'm first regardless. She lists the Broadway dancers that she chose to be in her life and to be as her backup dancer. That's amazing. I know. And it's about people that are gracious as well and like to give back and have a camaraderie. And it's a a beautifully worded paragraph that is set off by me, name-wise anyway. And I was like, Cheetah Rivera. I I couldn't believe it. I was so Class. But you know, she was a gypsy, right? She, at one time, oh, yeah. she was. And so she and has become who she is, yeah. a legend. But I think she's always appreciated dancers so much yeah. because she knows exactly what it's like. But how awesome is that? And I didn't start working for her until she was 80. 
Oh my gosh. Like she's like 85 now. How many shows did you do with her? Was uh, it just the, I mean, I know you did just, one it, full show. Yeah, it was just her. Um, one full run. It was the celebration of Chidi's 80th birthday. It was a Broadway Cares event. Okay. So that's another reason why I was like, I just worked for you with Broadway Cares. It wasn't even, you know, oh, but, it was, sweet. but it was a big night for her. And you had met her before though. Yes. So that's probably why, because you had already cultivated as a relationship yes. with her, right? But as a producer's assistant. But she got to know you. Yes. She got to know me as a dancer, but we talked as a da- about dance when I was producer's assistant, because it was a one-woman show mm-hmm. out there where we were rehearsing and, and performing. And at a couple nights, she, she just was like, uh, I just need to sit down and talk to a gypsy and sit down and Aww. talk to someone of like mind. We cultivated this small friendship that turned into something bigger and beautiful. And I'm also in David Loud's book. He's a big time musical director. He did Curtains. Okay. Uh, he did Masterclass. He did Superior. Oh, great. So it's exciting that two people who I really admire put me in their books. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's legendary, Brad. That's awesome. Uh, it makes me really happy, and I'm proud of that. So, and it was a, it was another thing that was just a compliment. And so it's, it makes me realize that that's what I like to take away from the big people that I've worked with is when they show that they can bring their class off stage, not just in front of the cameras or in front of the audience that they're truly legends. I think that's when you know that they're they're so comfortable in their capabilities that they're not threatened. Because I feel like a lot of time people yes. are rude because they're insecure. And so when you're truly secure in who you are and, and your capabilities, then you can actually be more gracious with other people. Okay, so I'm gonna switch gears slightly here. Growing up, I would say that you were a people pleaser. Would you agree with that? Yes. I always remember you as a, as a yes ma'am, no sir, like very people pleaser, what do you need, I got it kind of thing. But I definitely feel like you found your voice to assert yourself more, to stand up for yourself more later in life. I feel like there was a, a time when you got very political and you got more into the LGBTQ rights Yes. And all of that. Was there a catalyst or was it just a stage in your life? No, because you became very on your soapbox about a lot of that stuff. Oh, I really did. And that's where I many ways feel that I could see myself heading is really getting more into the LGBT community rights. Like even working for now instead of Mayor Pete, that now that Mayor Pete is Secretary Pete, like I want him to be President Pete. I would love that. And now he's Secretary Pete. So there's all these great options now that weren't ever allowed to me before. I never had the chance to say even hypothetically run as an out gay man. And that's really exciting. And I think I was really scared to even be gay because back in our youth, gay meant having AIDS. Right. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And we were at an age group that didn't live through the age crisis, but we sat there as adolescents watching the age crisis. The age crisis, yeah. And so we're like 13, 14-year-old kids watching all these people die, mostly men. Mostly gay men. Yes. And I was petrified. So I was petrified to be gay. And then there was a period where all gay men were dancers. So there weren't a lot of gay men dancers that were admitting that they were gay. I remember a moment in dance class. I was partying with a girl. And I don't know if we were doing something going around in a circle. But as soon as she got to me, she was like, oh my God, Brad, so-and-so sweat on me. I think I have AIDS. I'm pretty sure he's positive. She said, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Cause but you didn't want the same thing to be said for you. Yes. And at that time, sweat could have given it to you or spit couldn't get given it to you. We didn't know. We didn't know. We knew what did. Right. But we didn't know what also didn't. Right. And when they would say body liquids, these are guaranteed. 
Right. These are unclear. Everyone was so... Terrified. Terrified. Yeah. So it was a terrifying time for anyone, but especially, I think, those of us who pretty much knew we were gay at 14, but we're not going to tell anyone. Yeah. And you saw on the news people dying from it and them standing up to it. They weren't looked at as heroes. They were pariahs. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, because you, uh, I mean, you officially came out when you were 19, at least to me. Um, yes. And I think I was one of the first people you told, right? Oh, gosh, yes. So you came out at 19 on our balcony. I remember you were so nervous. And I mean, in hindsight, I was just like, what are you nervous about? It's just me. Yeah, we were one of the first people I was telling deep, dark secret that is going to send me to hell for the rest of my life. I was just mad because you were having an affair with the guy that I wanted to date, damn it. Well... <laughs> I needed to do a little bit of sowing my oats. Oh, yes. We were freshmen in college. Yeah. You came out when you were 19. You were openly gay. I was just thinking that you didn't become more political about it until later. Most people probably don't know that you actually hit the campaign trail. Like, you got in a bus and went to Ohio and knocked on doors, right? Oh, yes. Like, that's that was insane for to me. That was for Obama. The last ditch effort for his second campaign. I went on a bus for a week and stayed there and actually knocked on doors to get people to go. And then when again, I think it was only for four days that time, and that one was about getting people to the polls. Yeah. Like we went to get out the vote, and then we went to get to the polls. And so we got to the polls. Like at one point we were driving people to the polls. We had little vans. It was amazing. And, uh, and that also came from musical theater, and that came from playing opposite Gary Beach in Spamalot. When I took the tour of Spamalot, which was my dream, to play Patsy, I played opposite Gary Beach as King Arthur, and that was karma because I didn't get it originally and was so angry, so angry, <laughs> and stayed in the ensemble of Spamalot. A terrible job. Oh, poor me. Right. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you have to stay in a hit Broadway show for another several years, and you're going to have a hissy fit about it? But that's what happens. So three years into the tour, I went on the road and played opposite Gary Beach. We were a perfect match for each other. Like, our, our humors were similar, and that's how it was supposed to happen. Right. You know what I mean? And I had to realize that. But he was very political, and he was talking about Mayor Pete and stuff like that years afterwards. But if he hadn't introduced me to who Obama was, that campaign, I don't think I would have ever been interested. But he showed me the importance of being an American and the importance of being a participating American mm -hmm. and that you can't complain if you're not part of the process. And I was like, who are you? And I was just so shocking because I just was like, you're actually this smart. I thought you were just hysterical and you drink wine. <laughs> you know, no, he's, he's hysterical and drinks wine and is one of the, and was. God rest his soul, the smartest, funniest people I know. But he really instilled in me the importance of what it means to be an American, even if it means that it's terrible to be an American. I was always so in awe of you because I think of myself as political because, you know, I'll say stuff on Facebook and Instagram and whatever, but you want me to go knock on doors? That's a whole other level. I can't take the rejection. Like, I can't take people slamming doors in my face. But I will tell you that because of you, I did the texting things, you know, when people oh, yeah. text you to vote. I did that because of you. I was like, well, Brad can knock on doors. I can do this. My favorite story of that, though, is that it's me... And this guy named Vince Gatton, we knew each other from a different world. We were at a door once. This woman opens the door and she yells upstairs. And we were like, oh my gosh, they're hiding from us. All you hear is, Darla, Obama sends the gays this week. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny. And I was like, hi. And then at that moment, Darla walks down and my friend Vince walks up and we just started laughing. She's like, oh, but then we're starting to realize that this is the gays week, right? And I was like, 
Why, yes. Yes, it I is. I guess it is. It's a good thing you didn't come up in your white shirts and black ties, because, oh, yeah, that would have been... like, they sent the gay Mormons, <laughs> and they're singing to us. Ding dong. <laughs> okay, so talk to me about Harvey Milk. Ah, uh, Harvey the, Milk. And the effect on your life. I, I've just heard you talk about him and how he inspired you. Uh, I think he inspired me because it was right around the time where I... I would say my, my Broadway big theater career ended at 40. And I had a great career from 40 to 45 where I was doing amazing principal work. I was dancing upside downs on ceilings. Right, so your regional stuff was, was doing... Was doing well, well but yeah. all of a sudden I was feeling that like my Broadway career might be dwindling. Mm -hmm. And I was 40, and I realized that he's a person that changed the entire world. Mm -hmm. 40 years old. Yeah. He didn't even begin to start thinking the way he thought, outside of the box. Mm-hmm really thinking about anyone but himself until he was 40, and he was also dead by 50. So in 10 years, he, changed the he world. was able to do more than people could think of. And he was an educator, and so that was also very much like where I was thinking of going. It was just that amount of passion. It was also uh, the fact that he was able to become something else at a different stage in life. Mm -hmm. That it wasn't, nothing was over. He was still recreating himself. Yes. Yeah. And I think we're, and I don't know why I say more our generation, but I think our, our generation, we very much had to have blinders on to succeed. You had to do one thing, and that was, you put the blinders on, and you're like, I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be on Broadway. The blinders kept getting tighter and tighter. Mm -hmm. And they're also beautiful blinders. When I went to my nephew's high school graduation, I looked at all the kids out there, and I was like, I wonder what they're all dreaming of. And I was like, I was dreaming of being on Broadway. And I was like, I've already achieved it, achieved it Yeah. what these kids are thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I've achieved it several times. But what I never thought to do until I was 40 was think to achieve something else, or think to achieve something more. Now I was being forced to. And he was my inspiration. Still is. There wouldn't be a Mayor Pete if there was no Harvey Milk. Right. Well, we all stand on the shoulders of somebody else. Yes. And so there are people standing on your shoulders, though, Brad. You have uplifted many a person by your artistry, by your humanity. Well, so. thank you. Because yeah. I don't feel like that right now, per se. I don't always feel like that. But I'm going to take that compliment. But you have. I'm going to run it. Like you said, we're, we might be one small piece of glitter, but when you put all that glitter together, you are part of that handful of glitter that is changing the world. That's probably one of the gayest things I've ever said. But it's... <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Oh, yeah. Somehow it's perfect. <laughs> so what a lot of people might not know is that you are currently battling terminal cancer. And it is staggering how positive you have remained through this whole process. Obviously, I'm not here when no one's around, and I know that it's not always positive. But my question for you, how much of it is truly in your nature? Because I do know you to be a super positive person. But is there a part of it where we're always the eternal actors putting on a happy face? That's a good question. Um, because I think that there is truly something about show must go on. Mm -hmm. And I know I've done that. Because sometimes you just have to like suit up and show up and do that. And I feel like part of just my human nature wants me to do that. Uh, but that would be inauthentic. And the only way right now for me to survive this any longer, I have to be real. And I have to accept the realness of it. Because... When I was diagnosed, I was really at a, I was 48. I had kicked the insecurities that I had at the beginning of my 40s where I wasn't going to uh, make it anymore and I was done. I had gotten rid of those insecurities 
really reinvented myself physically and mentally. I had just I just booked my first movie. I went through a slew of great principal roles um, in my late 40s, and I was like, wait a minute, I can I can do this. And so all of that was taken away from me that I initially could have been so angry, and I wasn't, and I'm not. Which is mind-boggling to me. I'm angry for you, so the fact that you can say that is just... Well, I am really scared. Yeah. I'm scared because it's happening sooner than I wanted to, and I'm scared that it hurts more than I wanted to, and um, I'm scared that there's no cure. And I think I'm used to fighting for something that you win. That I'm gonna win, or at least get through. Right. Or maybe I'm not gonna get cast, but I'll get to do the tour. <laughs> you know. But there is no answer like that. It's about how well you want to live the remainder of your life and how worthless that piece of paper is that has become your resume and how important the memories that people have of you that say, I just thought you were the nicest kid on the school bus. Yep. Because that's more important than... Than your resume. Yes. Absolutely. And I think almost everybody has a story like that about me, which they're telling me lately, texting me lately, there's sending pictures of me lately, and I was like, wow, I'm really blessed. You are blessed, but again, you've earned that. By being the human you are, you've earned that. So we're blessed. We're blessed for having had you in our lives. Thank you. Um, and you're still beautiful when you cry. <laughs> Your eyes just, like, light up. See? Even now. Even now you'll tell me what I want to hear. <laughs> well, that comes with the territory. You know someone from seventh grade. You better say something nice <laughs> when they're crying. <laughs> Actually, one of my questions was, given your life, the ups and downs, including today, would you still consider yourself blessed? Well, yes, I am. I would say I'm still blessed. Do I want to be dying of cancer? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I have to respect the people in my life that know me well enough and who I've been honest with. None of them are saying, you're going to make it. This is going to be the... You're going to make pull through it because they all know that it's uncurable. And I told them that, and they know, they've respected that, and they haven't tried to fake it. What do you think your legacy is? Or I should say, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, well, let me ask you a question. What do you consider a legacy? What do you want to be remembered as? As a podcast person, as a Broadway person, as a beautiful human, like, what is, what is it that you want people to say about you? People would be like, wow, he was, he was a very talented, kind person that always put others in, in front of himself. But that doesn't mean that he didn't always pursue the best opportunities for himself as well. That he was able to authentically want something and put it out there as an honest, kind person. And then what you saw is what you get. But don't be swayed by the smile because it's real. Mm-hmm. It's genuine. It's actually you are genuine. A genuine person. I have a little quote that I put by myself that just says, I, I earn my smile lines. You have? Yes, because I smile all the time. Yeah. People, like, all the time now, to walk into my room, they'll be like, look at that smile, which makes me want to smile more. I just smile and smile. <laughs> uh, so that's really it, is that. I don't know if that's a legacy or not, but I've earned these smile lines, that's you know? And I have a friend here visiting who's actually sitting right here at my bedside that has a cream that takes away the smile lines. <laughs> so it's fantastic. So I can have as deep smile lines as I want because I always have a good friend sitting nearby 
with a cream that'll make them a little lighter. And I swear to goodness, that is exactly true. I am not making that up. Uh, Mitch, I'm going to need some of that. You're so stupid. Uh, I am so stupid. So on the whole, how you're going to be remembered in the world, I'm just saying from my heart, I hope you know how much you have given the world with your positive attitude and your talent and your kindness and your work ethic and your friendship that I know personally that you're the kind of friend that I could count on. Even no matter how much time went by, I could call you. And that's not common. And so I think your legacy is going to be amazing. Everybody loves you. Literally, everybody loves you. And I'll probably cut this part out because it's totally dorky, but I was trying to like come up with a poem or something that I thought really expressed what I felt. And it was a song that your pal Stephen Schwartz did. Let's see if I can actually say this. Let me say, before we part, so much of me is made of what I learned from you. You'll be with me, like a handprint on my heart. And know, now whatever way our stories end, that I know you have rewritten mine, by being my friend, because I knew you. I have been changed for good. Thank you. That's truth. Somebody said that the people you grow up with know your stories. You know my stories. I don't ever have to explain myself to you. I never have to tell you anything because you know them all. Because you've been my friend. Always. All right, I have to end it with your question. Ooh. What song defines you or means the most to you? Uh, gosh, I knew I was having this interview. <laughs> and I don't know. Take your time. Take your time. Can I think about it till Monday? Mm -hmm. I'm going to think about it till Monday. Unfortunately, Monday never came. Brad passed away on Sunday, June 4th at 2.26 in the afternoon, surrounded by his family and friends. He is gone far too soon, and yet he did so much and touched so many in the short time he had. The world is a far better place for having had Brad in it, and we will all miss him so much. My name is Susan Stroman. I adored Brad. I am so sorry that we have lost him at such a wonderful light. I will truly miss him. Of course, I remember him so vividly from Steel Pier. We were all so excited about doing a brand new Canner Neb musical. But what Brad did was extraordinary. One of our leading players, Joel Blum, hurt himself, and there's nothing worse than seeing a dancer go down. But Brad, who was his understudy, stepped right in and not only stepped in, really grabbed this part. And really, we saw him as a hero. He knew the whole part, which was a big role and a big dance role. And he not only acted it brilliantly, but he looked amazing on stage. His dance partner was the wonderful Valerie Wright, and they blended together beautifully. The whole creative team thought of him as our hero. He also had another moment in the show that made us laugh, where he played Mr. Peanut. It was well known that on the Steel Pier, Mr. Peanut would dance down the boardwalk. So of course we had a Mr. Peanut dance across the stage, and that was Brad. And he made us laugh, which the way he moved in that costume. We all all loved it. And of course it, it uh, led Fred Ebb to write the famous line, what are you nuts? Anyway, later on, when he started his podcast, I was so proud of him. And the fact that he started a podcast 
with dancers and ensemble members of Broadway shows. I thought that was brilliant. It was so innovative. I have this small discontent inside me that dancers are never respected enough. And I believe that they are the true backbone of any successful Broadway show. And so did Brad. And the fact that he would put this podcast together at a time when we weren't even sure what podcasts were. I mean, he was very early on with this. And to hear him interview all these people so, so just intelligently and interestingly and with curiosity and and that what we were hearing would now be passed on to younger generations. It was such a fantastic idea. And I listened to every single one of them, every single one of them. We were all so proud of him. He was really beloved in the theater community. I will miss him. But for all of us who he touched, we will carry him in our hearts forever. Brad's smiling face will be missed. I'll never forget that face and dancing with him for my birthday Broadway Cares celebration. Love, Cheetah. Hi, this is Casey Nicola, and I have the sweetest memories of Brad Bradley. We sat next to each other in the dressing room when we were both in Steel Pier and just laughed a lot, and he was always so positive and so much fun to be around. And then I uh, cast him in Spamalot, which was my first Broadway show as a choreographer. So he holds a special place in my heart, and he will be missed. The thing about Brad is he was an eternal optimist. Extraordinary. The sparkle in his eyes when he was talking about Cherry Grove. He was the most positive and optimistic person. He was a giving, loving soul. His kindness. Our hero. That glaring beam of light. I couldn't not have fun when I was with him. The glass was always half full. Vivacity. He was compassionate. His honesty. He made everything an adventure. Forgiving. Unbelievably Impeccable yet effortless dance style. He was doing turns in second about 500 of them. Silly, quirky sense of humor. Selfless and humble. Unbelievably versatile. His uncanny knack to know exactly when I needed to hear from him. His true desire to make a difference. His amazing ability to find gratitude and his smile. The very specific laugh he had when he found something that he said absolutely hilarious. Be grateful every single day. <laughs> <laughs> Where, <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs>